So hello, I'm Alex Ratkeen. I'm a barrister at Third Known Essex Chambers. I'm really pleased to be uh, joined today in the shed virtually in this very hot day, actually. So if we both look slightly hot, uh, apologies. Joined in the shed virtually by Professor Wayne Martin at the University of Essex. I always want to allow my guests to introduce themselves rather than me rabbit on about what it is that I think they do. So Wayne, over to you. Can I ask you to introduce yourself to the people watching and listening to this? Great, thank you, Alex. Yes, so I'm Wayne Martin. I'm a professor of philosophy uh, at the University of Essex. Um, but for the last 10 years now, um, I've been a kind of philosopher in residence inside the MCA. Um, worked very closely with you, Alex, which has been a great pleasure. And some of the other people who've been in this shed in our, uh, shed in our series, I direct a project called the Essex Autonomy Project. I like to reassure people it's not a liberation movement here in Essex. Uh, it's a research and public policy uh, project that focuses on the ideal of self-determination in care contexts. So anyway, that's us. Brilliant. That, that there are, from my experiences talking to you, there are so many things that I could ask you which would shed light on things that people are bothered about. But I think just for, as it were, time control purposes, we agreed we would zoom in, we would zero in on, on the idea of insight. Zoom in, yeah. You've been doing lots of work on, so I wonder if you could just kind of share some of the work you've been doing, and then we can sort of delve into how it really meshes with some of the concerns people have. Yeah, so like you, I am involved with this welcome-funded mental health and justice project, um, and I lead a work stream that is focused on the issue about insight, uh, patient insight, broadly speaking, awareness of illness or impairment. Although what it actually means, this term, um, is one of the questions that we've been uh, researching. That's an issue that has an application in a kind of an MHA context because it pertains to issues about sectioning and discharge from section uh, and so on. Uh, but the piece of work uh, that's really relevant to the MCA is about the interaction between uh, insight and capacity and the ways in which an assessment of a patient's insight might figure um, in an assessment of, uh, of capacity. Yeah, one of the, I mean, you sort of touched on it in the sense of, you know, people, one of the questions being, well, what does it actually mean? And yes. I think, I wonder whether for sort of purposes of our discussion, Either if you could, what's the working definition that you would be operating on? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, the, there, in 2018, as you'll know, you were involved with it. NICE uh, published these guidelines um, on mental capacity and decision making and its assessment. And there is one guideline in there that's uh, about insight. And actually, the main, uh, the main guidance there, and it's a good one, is to say what you mean. If you think that the patient's impaired insider, present insight is relevant to their capacity, then you should say what you mean by that. I found it, in fact, I think people, um, uh, practitioners often find it difficult to follow that advice. Um, it's a bit difficult to articulate that. Uh, I mean, at the core of the, uh, of the phenomenon, the kind of standard sort of case and the one that's been most researched is you know, a patient, for example, with paranoid schizophrenia who to clinical professionals is clearly very unwell um, and yet just systematically denies illness. And as a consequence of that is typically not keen to participate in treatment. Um, that's the kind of canonical um, uh, example. 
uh, of insight and the one that's been most researched. One of the things that we're finding though is that uh, that's actually one of a family of cases. I mean, Wittgenstein talks about a family resemblance. Uh, sometimes you can't give a strict definition of a term because one just has a whole bunch of different cases that have something in common. So a different kind of case might involve somebody who has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, and very strongly identifies with that diagnosis. They might be a member of a advocacy organization and so on. So they're not denying the diagnosis, but when they get into a manic state, they deny that they're in a manic state. So it's a different sort of configuration. Uh, another example would be um, in brain injury cases. Uh, one focus of our research right now has been on brain injury recovery units in the NHS. Um, and there's a certain category of uh, brain injury where there are very clear deficits associated with the um, with the, the brain injury, and yet there's a denial that there is any deficit there. Um, the, I mean, we've had the privilege in this study of being able to sit in on ward rounds at some of these uh, NHS facilities. And, you know, it's really quite striking the way in which, you know, the, the patient will you know, have a series of questions about whether they have any, they, they, you know, they know they had a brain injury, um, now the question is, all right, how are you doing? You know, how, what are the lingering effects? Oh, no, there are none, you might say. No, I'm over it now. I'm ready to get back to work. And then the consultant does some very simple cognitive tests, the kind that Donald Trump is very proud of having passed, um, to repeat a series of, of terms, you know, uh, for example, or to count backwards from 100. And then there's a you know, very striking failure to, to perform those tasks, followed by a repeating of the insistence that there's no deficit, there's nothing wrong. So that that's the kind of uh, phenomenon there. I'm trying not to actually provide a unified yeah. definition because I think there's a lot of different, uh, different presentations. One thing that people do say is that what it really means when, when a clinician says P lacks insight is that P disagrees with the diagnosis. That's an allegation that has been made by critics of the concept of, uh, of insight. Um, I think, in fact, that's not a fair characterization. So we've been, you know, one of our forthcoming articles, so very soon I think it will come out in Frontiers of Psychiatry, um, is a survey of the way in which the concept of insight figures in the court protection cases that have been published. And what you find there is a bunch of different patterns of the way it's used, both in saying what it means or elaborating its significance and in connecting it to capacity. And this thing about denial of diagnosis is just one of the patterns. It's super interesting because as, as you were giving me your family description of case, or what's, so that, that, that I outlined some of the members of the family, it was, it was really striking me the extent to which some of them were definitely into the zone where for instance, and, and uh, somebody who very strongly denies the idea that, for instance, psychiatry is a valid profession. So an external observer might be saying, well, actually what's going on is there's a value clash between a professional who is in, invested in the idea that I'm a psychiatrist and somebody who is utterly disinvested in that. And so that does feel more, you're just disagreeing with the professional. Whereas the, the brain injury one, it, it, 
it sounds from the description significantly more difficult to level that charge and i hate to use the word objective in front of a philosopher but there is something that that you have something which is it affords of as it were a, 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 a immediately repeatable endlessly repeatable thing the person can't do in circumstances where as it were they say they can and i think that's to me is very interesting that as you say that it's there's it's been used as a big umbrella term covering quite a range of things which people might be more or less as it were happy with yeah yeah so uh, we promised the welcome trust we're going to come up with guidance to develop the nice guidance further um and uh, i'm not sure we're going to say say what you mean but one our version of say what you mean is see if you can translate out of this insight idiom um so some people say we ought to just banish this talk about insight it's a really a bad concept um and we just ought to get rid of it either in general some people take that view including some psychiatrists who say, I really, I mean, George Schmuckler is an example. We've had a lot of discussions about this. And he, for years, has said, I just try to avoid this term in my practice. Um, or you could say, it's okay to have it clinically. It's a useful concept clinically, um, but you shouldn't, you should banish it from the courtroom. I think the Court of Protection Practitioners Association in their uh, comments on the first draft of those NICE guidelines they said, really, this should, you should not even be talking about insight and guidance on, on capacity assessment. I think that's probably not a realistic way to go. First of all, I think it's a term that's so entrenched um, in clinical discourse that you're not actually going to get rid of it. I think that the, the phenomena, and I use phenomena in the plural advisedly here, it's not one phenomenon, they're different phenomena, but the phenomena of impaired insight is such a salient reality for a clinician and such an important variable, you know, in the clients that they're uh, dealing with, that you know they need a name for it. Um, but our guidance is to say, look, see, when you, when that if you think that the insight is relevant to or the impaired insight is relevant to the impaired capacity, first of all, be specific about what insight you're talking about. Insight into what? We're used to this idea when we're talking about capacity, it's decision specific. So you better specify what decision we're talking about. That's a discipline that I think over the last 10 years has really bedded down um, uh, among practitioners. Um, the, uh, but similarly, with respect to insight, you ought to be specific about insight into what? Is it about your the fact that you're ill? Um, is it, for example, about your support needs, about how much support you're going to need in order to carry on with your life? There are people who think, look, I can live on my own. They're not really aware of the fact that here in hospital, they're getting 24-hour support, right? Um, or that they're unaware of risk. That's another thing one finds in the court protection cases. Actually, the relevant thing is not so much insight into illness. They might have that, but they just don't have insight into the degree of risk of the thing that they're doing. So that's one of the pieces of guidance, insight specificity. But then the other is see if you can translate out of this idiom of insight. So if you say, for example, lacks insight into their illness or their diagnosis. Do you, do you mean there that they don't understand the diagnosis? Or do you mean that they don't accept the diagnosis? Because those are two different things. And I think legally, they have quite different significance. Yeah. And of course, one of the things, and I know the guidance will do this, is you do have to then translate it somehow into the language of the Mental Capacity Act. Yes. I mean, you've got to find some way of housing, which in a way is what the NICE guidance 
is sort of, is trying to say you've got to find some way of housing this thing you have identified in a way which responds to what the law says because otherwise you you've created and you've just asserted something which legally actually doesn't do what it is that you think you've it, it's done that's right so uh this pertains to um another piece of our guidance. Uh, guidance, I should say at this point, is still at the draft stage, but if anybody here you know, listening to this uh, wants to see it, we'd be happy to share it uh, as long as they promise to give us their feedback on it, because uh, we have another year or so uh, to, to finalize it. Um, the, um, but so one of the pieces of advice is avoid any direct inference from lack of capacity to lack, sorry, from lack of insight to lack of capacity. Um, we, you know, we have a paper we're finalizing now where we, there are various ways and people have tried to warrant that inference and they just don't stand to scrutiny. But um, there's nonetheless an indirect inference that is goes through one of the four statutory abilities, right? Um, so the MCA, as you know, everybody listening to this is going to know unpacks the concept of decision-making capacity into these uh, what we call the statutory abilities uh, you know understand retain use and weigh communicate a choice so if i lack capacity and it and the root sort of cause of my lack of capacity is my lack of insight then it must be that my lack of insight is somehow impacting on one of those four statutory abilities. And if it is, according to the second principle of the MCA, one of the things I ought to ask is, what can I do to support that person to restore those abilities? In, and that might be fostering insight. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but then, okay, at any rate, I'm going to have to specify which of those four things um, is impaired by the insight uh, in order to warrant the finding uh, of lack of capacity. I mean, one of the ones that's particularly interesting there is understand, because there are those, and uh, I have the highest regard for uh, James Munby, uh, from whom I've learned a huge, huge amount over the years, but he does have a judgment that I think makes a philosophical uh, mistake, that's, uh, where he says explicitly, if you don't, um, if you don't uh, believe that you have uh, this illness, then you don't understand the diagnosis. I think that's a, a mistake. Um, the, uh, and I think it's very striking that in the Law Commission's reports leading up to the, uh, to the Mental Capacity Act, they emphasize that it's all about understanding the information that's relevant to the diagnosis. Yes. So, and one has to exercise particular care around that understanding issue. Because I mean, it's sort of two places where you meet you can mediate the thing that you're identifying into the language you need to apply to actually do your do the job do the statutory job is the kind of two natural ones might be understanding or using and weighing yeah. and i'm just wondering whether you've got a sense from well i as it were both a sense from your experience of what you'll see people you see people do and then also really in a way more interestingly at least to me what you think people should do in other words, should they be seeking to mediate it through an understanding, as it were, issue, or mediating it through a using and weighing issue? Yeah, I think they're both. Um, I think both are uh, both are relevant. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, one of the things we see in practice 
uh, and we will report on uh, this in some of the forthcoming uh, work. So this is sort of a, a taster, I guess. Um, you know, in clinical settings, I mean, one of the things that was really surprising for me to discover is the extent to which, even in locked psychiatric wards, which is where we're doing one piece of the study, how much the Mental Capacity Act is very much part of the kind of texture uh, of, of practice. Um, and actually, the thing that's um, one of the things that's also striking about that is about its relevance to consent. I mean, we off, I know this is not true of you, Alex, but I think there are there is a kind of a, a one sort of framework. People think that the assessment of capacity is primarily pertinent to refusals. So somebody's refusing this help; they're putting themselves at risk by refusing whatever it is. And so we need to assess whether the refusal is valid. But in fact, every time somebody takes anybody's consent, that consent is only valid if it's, you know, underwritten with capacity. And so um, one of the things we see in uh, ward round settings is patients want to be in, want to be voluntary patients. Um, and so, uh, and that's, it can be an important step on the whole sort of journey through uh, a, 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 an admission. Um, and so then the team has to decide, um, you know, well, do they understand <laughs> the, what they're agreeing to here? So I know there's all kinds of fraught and important legal issues about whether consent is ever possible in those sorts of settings. But one sees in practice that there is, in fact, a probing of capacity in that kinds of context. So then, you know, one probes for understanding. What, you know, what do you understand about what's going to be going on here? What do you understand about why you are here in hospital? Um, what do you understand about the, you know, the risks and benefits um, here? So that's a really a positive piece of, you know, probe for those things. Insight is relevant. I mean, there's this lovely Australian case that talks about, you know, relevant but not PBU, I think it's called. Yes. Uh, relevant, insight is relevant but not determinative um, of the finding. So the, 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 in, the question about insight is relevant in that, but the positive thing is probe for the statutory abilities. That's where the action lies. And so I might find there's quite a lot of evidence of lack of insight here, significantly impaired insight, and yet there are these, here's this positive evidence that the person does understand and is actually using and weighing the, the, that information. To me, that's pretty compelling evidence of what we call insightless capacity, right? I mean, that's a case of capacity without, and so people need to be alive uh, to that possibility. I think in fact, practitioners are alive to that possibility when they are, it's a consent situation, but they tend to forget about that when it's a refusal situation. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. We're pretty much out of time. And I just wonder whether there's, you've given so many rich things to think about and you've also done some really good trails for stuff which is coming further down the line from, from, your, from the work stream. If there was kind of one key practice point for people at this stage, what would, what can I, can I entice you to give us one key practice point from, from all the stuff that you've been doing, seeing, working, reflecting on? Yeah, well, I guess it would be something I've already, I repeat something I've already said. Beware the direct inference from lack of capacity to lack of insight. Sorry, oops. <laughs> no editing of this web webinar. Uh, beware the direct inference from lack of insight to lack of capacity. Um, 
but be open to the mediated or indirect inference that the insight, the, the impaired insight might impact uh, upon one of the statutory abilities. I think so relevant, but not determinative in the Australian phrase. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastically useful case, that PBU case. And also I think just, just for people who don't know it, one of the other things I think is really helpful and it ties exactly in with what you're just saying is the bit which talks about what a good capacity determination is. And it says it's one which, and it's trying to balance, you know, right to autonomy versus right to life, all the sort of empowerment protection agenda. And it says a good capacity determination in this zone is one which is uh, criteria focused and evidence-based and then person-centered and non-judgmental, which is exactly what you're saying, which is I've got to focus on the statutory criteria. I'm then pulling in all the evidence I can to allow me to think about this. Yeah. Is my, my little legal take-home message to sit alongside exactly, to, I hope complementarily. Yeah. What it's interesting though, even there in Australia, in the aftermath of that case, which I think you and I both have a lot of time for, um, it also engages quite a lot with English law. Um, the, it's very controversial in Australia. There's some quite uh, ferocious uh, criticisms of it there. So it's a, um, I think it's a, it's an ongoing. Uh, this is a, a classic case where you can have a legally sound and ar argument, but it doesn't necessarily change um, change minds. Uh, so I think there's more work to be done there. And for me, at least a part of this, we've talked about this before, uh, but part of that is. I think for, especially for those who are sort of tempted by the direct inference to appreciate the way in which they are implicitly, when they're taking consent, ascribing capacity. If they're already doing that in the one case, I mean, then uh, they need to be alive to the possibility in the refusal case as well. Brilliant, well, thank you so much, Wayne. Thank you for all your, well, that's a terrible you. insights. Um, thank you for your time. Great, okay.